Hi, you're listening to, that was terrible, that was so, that was customer service voice. Half the words you said, it sounded like you were just sneezing. I'm pretty sure my neighbor is a doomsday prepper. A spiky brass knuckles with a knife. Hey, this guy might murder me. I kind of feel like I'm taking crazy pills. You find porn on page right. two, no matter what. <laughs> Perfect. Nobody's listening anyway, so it's it's probably fine. Hi, this is Texas 1031. Uh, we are a true crime podcast, particularly pertaining to crimes that happen in Texas. Um, if this is your first time listening, 1031 is a police code uh, for crime in progress, which I didn't know. It's just super cool. Um, we're your hosts, Cassie and Hannah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And it stands for Halloween. Don't forget. Oh, absolutely. Very important. And just because it's the month of Halloween doesn't mean we're going to stop saying happy Halloween. Halloween is all year round. My decorations <laughs> are staying up forever. Uh, so every week we have two murders that we discuss. Uh, this week we have one set in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and then the other will be in Houston. Um, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions, please email us at texas1031podcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook, which they're both at texas1031podcast if you feel like it. Um, and just remember, no dashes, no spaces, no capitalizations, or numbers. Mm. Just all spelled out. All the numbers are spelled out. Yes. Yeah. And please don't forget to uh, rate, review, subscribe. It helps us out. It's super cool and easy to do. Um, even if you're not a fan, please just give us like commentary. Give us um, your grievances. We want to be better yeah. and cooler and more fun. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. We're so happy you're here. <laughs> We'll go ahead and get started into episode five. Um, before we do uh, Cassie's murder, I'm going to kind of talk to you guys about some stuff that I have uh, been wanting to go over that I've recently found in the last week. So uh, first of all, our website, most importantly, the website Yay! is live and going. It looks so great. Yeah, it's Hannah cool. did an amazing job. Cacti on there. So yeah. it's super Texas-y. Um, it does have a direct link to our SoundCloud in the little bio area, which is kind of cute. It has little names, whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also a page of like a little bio about Cassie and I and kind of what we're doing. And then there is a page on our social media and kind of how to reach us, things like that. Um, it's not much for now, but it's a decent start. So if you guys want to check it out, that would be awesome. I kind of wanted to mention a few things and recommend some shows and some podcasts that I found in the last few days. Um, I messaged Cassie last week. I was on a and I was uh, trying to find something new to watch, whatever. And this show called The Eleven popped up. It premieres, I think, on Thursday. This isn't a shameless plug for a and but No, whatever. we're not getting paid, but I'm no. so stoked for this. Yeah, I, it should be really good. I didn't think it was true crime because I saw vague previews of mm-hmm. it and I thought it was maybe a true crime dramatization you know I mean it kind of is but it's not necessarily it's like a yeah things that happen yeah I, it's yeah. not a scripted thing yeah but, um, so that's really cool I had told her about this already but I'll tell you guys too my friend at work had tried to tell me about this show and this killer several weeks ago I had gone to him and was like hey I know you're from Baton Rouge but do you know any maybe like cool serial killer murder stuff maybe something happened near the border that he could maybe tell me about mm. and uh, he was like oh well you know there's this blah 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 and I was like this guy has it all wrong like I thought he might have been mentioning like Robert Durst or just or maybe getting like Dean Coral confused with like the Texas killing fields that kind of thing that's mm-hmm. in League City but he was definitely talking about this and I was like I am such a dingus like I should have known 
Um, but yeah, it's like about 11 girls that are found dead in Galveston, I believe, and in the 1970s. So I'm really looking forward to that one. So nuts. Um, let's see. Okay. I'm going to talk about this. I'll probably edit it out, but (laughs) I'm really excited to tell you guys this because I have only like vented about this a couple times to people, but I was researching my next murder and I watched an episode of Forensic Files that was connected to some of the websites that I found the information on. (laughs) And I was like, sweet, I'm going to watch an episode of Forensic Files. I love Forensic Files. And I have this theory, and it is so true, and if you don't believe me, then you're crazy. Go figure it out for yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I already told Cassie what it is, so it, I'm excited when to hear I more. read off everything, it'll kind of make sense. So my theory is, is that for some reason, maybe it's because Forensic Files itself is an alliteration, but everyone in the episodes either has an alliteration for their name, which would be like the same letter as their first name and their last name, or it's the most like crazy last name you've ever heard of in your life. Mm-hmm. And I watched a few episodes from season six and season seven last night. So I'm going to list them off to you, starting with the alliteration ones. So we have Dave Distel, Bob Ball, Ben Benson, Dorothy Davis, and Matt Maloney. I'm sorry. No. So now for the weird last names. Um, and I'm just doing the last name, not the first name, because obviously I don't want to make fun of that person, but some of their first names were just as weird. Hmm. So there's Moylanen, M-O-I-L-A-N-E-N, Moylanen, Okay. Whatever. This one's probably one of my favorites. It's, it's a hyphenation. It's a Wysocki Jessup. No. Yeah. No. Uh, Lampanen, which isn't too bad, but still odd. Mm. Uh, Paxensi, that's a tongue twister. Abdil, No. Silwa with a C. This one's good. And I caught this at the very end of the episode, and I'm so glad that I did. It's uh, Lick Litter. Oh, that yeah. one. Yep. Uh, we have Schmunk, Hawkhead, Mock, Schlip, Terzian, Flatiger, Bosma. And the last one is Rusha. And that doesn't sound very weird, but it's spelled H-R-U-S-A, so... Just, just saying. If anyone agrees with me, I hope you do. Please go watch an episode. And there's not, it's not every single episode, but most likely you'll find at least one thing. Obviously enough to notice. "Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So thirdly, I wanted to recommend a podcast episode from the podcast. And this is why we drink. It's episode 18. It aired on June 4th. Um, so if you guys don't listen to them, it's actually a really fun podcast, two girls that do it together. Um, one does like a paranormal thing, one does a murder, but, uh, the paranormal one, the girl who does the paranormal stuff, her name's M. She does a story of the La Lurie mansion in New Orleans. Oh. Yeah. Um, it was really like good. It was really gory and creepy. So if you wanted like a Halloween theme kind of whatever to listen to since Halloween's coming up, I thought I'd recommend it. I liked it a lot. That also kind of segues into my little Steve. King story if we want to jump yes, into that. Or please do. Oh my gosh. Cassie was hesitant <laughs> about talking about this, but I was like, no, I really, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I really wanted it to be Stephen King, but it's okay. So, well, so. yeah, she, I, I definitely, <laughs> this person that looks a lot like Stephen King came and sat at the bar top while I was doing an event. Um, basically I work in like beer sales and sometimes I have to be at bars and restaurants like after hours and I'm just doing things and talking to guests and whatever at this particular time i was behind the bar safely thankfully because this guy came up and he just started like kind of rude at first just like dismissive like didn't want to talk to me but then he asked me a question about my beer i'm a really good salesperson so i gave him a big long spiel about it got very got him very into it he bought a couple of my beers blah 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 and then uh 
I gave him a sticker at some point because I was handing out glassware as a prize. So since he bought my beer but didn't want to participate in anything, I gave him a sticker. And on the back of the sticker, he hands me this handwritten note that... Oh, you have a picture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's serial killer chicken scratch. Yeah, it's scary handwriting. And he hands me this note... And he stares at me while I read it to myself. It's kind of girly, honestly. It reminds me of my handwriting because I write really terribly, so I could understand it. (laughs) I could read it, but I could see... It's all caps. Yeah. It says, thanks for the cool beer. You should come over and check out some historic guitars and amps if you like that kind of thing. We didn't talk about music at all the entire time. Nothing but beer. And for a very brief moment. So, like, why would you Um, mention that? Why? Like, Like, that doesn't make sense. I didn't... I'm not... Like, oh, you have cool, like, dyed hair and tattoos. I must be into old man rock and roll. (laughs) Um, If you like that kind of thing, um, I'm at blah, blah, blah. He gives me his full address. I looked it up. It's a real place. It's a real house. It's not a murder cabin, Um, but it very well might be. And he said, you're very nice. Thanks. And gave me his phone number. So I used to bartend. Hannah and I both used to bartend together. (laughs) Creepy guys would happen all the time. You brush it off. You learn to brush it off. The fact that he stared me down while I read this, waited for me to read it, and waited for me to respond in a very, like, nervous, like, clearly I was shaken. Like, why even write it down if you're just going to wait for you to read it? Why don't you just say it to your face? Yeah, and And I have to be at this place. Like, I'm doing this thing all month, so I feel like he's going to come back. Right, she Time can't. Again. She's at work, so she can't yeah. just be like, "No, go fuck yourself." Yeah, you know? exactly. So I have to be nice, but I'm definitely gonna let the like people that work there. Hey, this guy might murder me. So Cassie is gonna be first this week. Yes. Um, my crime story this week. Um, it's too broad to really title it with the victims' names, but they're gonna be the first names that I say because if that feels right. Um, so we're talking about what happened to Jeffrey Davis, Betty Joe Monroe, also possibly known as Montana, um, Sandra Bailey, and Stephen Pfefferman. I yeah. like the whole Betty Joe thing. That's oh, adorable. Betty Joe's adorable. Yeah. It's so cute. Um, but they all met their ends at the hands of Ricky Lee Green. Green was born in Boyd, Texas. Um, the last census taken in 2010 uh, gave that a population of a little over 1,200 people, and it's about 30 miles northwest of Fort Worth. So I feel like it's more kind of like a, a populous suburb of the bigger city, Fort Worth. But back in the 60s when Ricky was born, I'm sure it was a pretty podunk town. Um, North Texas, AF. Um, (laughs) So uh, Ricky was born on (laughs) December 27th, 1960. Um, He had one brother, Tony, who tragically died at the age of six. I couldn't find much about that. I could just find his birth date and his death. Um, Tony was Ricky's younger brother. His father was William Bill, in air quotes, Green Jr., and his mother's name was Jessie. Um, there's not a heaping amount of information about Ricky, but I did find enough that I found interesting to decide to go forward with him being my crime topic this week. Um, one thing that I did find an abundance of, because it was something he used in his defense later on in this story, um, was his father was horrifyingly abusive. Um, one story that really stuck out to me, when Ricky was six, his father used to sit on the family's house porch and tell Ricky to run into the yard as he shot BB gun pellets at him and tried to make him, like, 
dodge after them and he always got oh, hit so because funny. he's a six year old. Yeah. yeah. And he would always just tell him like maybe you should get faster. Like just What a dick. Total dickhead. Yeah. Um Ew. So, you with a BB gun. Yeah, this kid grew up in an abusive household. I couldn't find anything about his brother, like I said, his mother, um, except for their names really, because it was all about his father who was verbally abusive, uh, physically abusive, emotionally abusive. Um, he quoted his father as saying, you're no good and you never will be. Sometimes, though, Ricky got to stay with his grandfather. Um, also a really horrifying thing in his life because his grandfather was very, um, he would molest him. And oh there were a lot like, more. What happened? Like, what was in the water in the 60s and oh. 70s where everyone was just a piece of shit? I, I, don't, I don't understand. No. And that's like... That is my absolute worst thing in the world to happen to someone, I yeah, feel. Like, it's, it's it's horrifying. and um, It's a common factor, though, with a oh, lot of killers. A lot of serial killers. Yeah. Like, you're almost breeding yeah. a serial killer. Yeah. Um, Ricky remarked that he couldn't really understand why the ones that were supposed to love him always hurt him. Mm. So, very much That's breeding sad. a serial killer, yeah. Um, he grew up, he ended up being a radiator repairman. Um, when I saw his arrest report, it listed that he only had eight years of education. So, that leads me to believe that he dropped out his freshman year of high school. So, he was not very educated. Um, he learned a trade, and that was his profession. Mm. Um in February of 1984, so he's 24 at this point, he marries Mary Frances. Um, pretty big jump and gap in his life, but I couldn't find much information. There's not a lot on him. Maybe he just worked and kind of laid low. I, I feel like he did, and I feel like we'll talk about this in our theory part, but I feel like there was a lot of repressed stuff yeah, that bubbles up, of course, Keeps but... It. Keeps it low because he's dealing with stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so he married Mary Frances, and what I found that this marriage was solely based on sex. Um, that was really all that was going on in it. He was a very jealous person. He thought that she was always, you know, skirting out on him and doing it with other dudes. Um, and he was a <laughs> crazy alcoholic as well. Wait, so she got vibes that he was bisexual or gay? Or... Oh, no, no, no. He thought she, she was cheating. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. But funny that you say bisexual. We'll go into that. Okay. Um, one night, uh, the night that Mary actually decided to leave him, which good for freaking her, um, he was hammered drunk waiting for her on the couch when she came home from work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he pulled the knife held her at knife point and violently raped her. And so she decided that was it and she was leaving. So she's amazing for doing that. So yeah, good good for her for leaving because I, I can't imagine how difficult that was at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe they had been married for a very long time. Um, but still, good on her. She Absolutely. missed out on a whole boatload of crap. So um, we're going to move right along in his life. So two weeks after Mary left him, so this is early March of 1984. He meets Sharon Dollar. Um, they had lots of sex, lots of drinking. <laughs> she was kind of an alcoholic as well. Um, they partied a lot together, and he moved in with her after three days of knowing each other. Mm. So they were clearly in just a haze of yeah. sexual pleasure and alcohol-fueled everything. Um, and his drinking of course, increased um, with this meeting. He found out pretty quickly that she had what I'm calling as bloodlust. The source I found on this was pretty graphic in this, um, so I condensed it down to 
While they were having sex one night, she pricked his penis. And what? Um, I couldn't find, I think like from the way I feel like a pen, like a needle, something like that, okay. that was just whatever was by the bed. Something small, not like I have a knife, here I go. Right, right, okay, right, right. Okay. Something small and just so she could suck out the blood because she wanted to know what it tasted like. And Naturally. I guess they were comfortable enough with each other. Um, from this source I saw, which I feel like, I honest to God feel like Ricky himself might have written this because it's so terribly yeah. written. Um, there are couples like that, though, that are, like, there are. fucking weird. And if that's your thing, that's your thing. If you don't end up murdering people, people after this. Do yeah. whatever you want. Absolutely. Um, he kind of resisted at first. He wasn't super into it. But then um, it was said that once he felt the pleasure that came with her sucking out the blood and kind of tending to the wound, he was kind of into it. So their relationship started getting more and more, like, graphically kind of... Kinky. Kinky, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> very kinky Good after friend. that. Um, so in April of 1985, they've been together for almost a year now. He meets this 16-year-old boy named Jeffrey Davis. Um, they become friends, both hanging out as friends, and they were driving around in Ricky's truck and drinking and just hanging out. I've done that. Well, I haven't really... I've never drank while driving or drank it, but I've driven around with friends in cars for hours when I was 16. Like, that's definitely... I I feel like that's kind of a normal thing. It's semi-normal. Yeah, especially because, I mean, I necessarily didn't do that specifically, but I know that in a lot of, like, smaller towns, you see that all the time in, like, movies. Like, this is the main drag, and you go and you hang out. Like, Dazed and Confused is, like, the Mm -hmm. movie that comes to mind with that, where you just, like, all hang out to be seen, you know? Yeah. Ricky pulled over and uh, stopped to urinate on the side of the road, basically. And from what he said in a statement about this, um, when he got back in this car, the 16-year-old Jeffrey was masturbating in the passenger seat. Again, naturally. Yeah, so... These people are gross. I know. Yeah, and I'm I'm very speculative about this, but we can go into that a little bit later. But um, basically, it was said that Jeffrey asked Ricky if he wanted to touch him. Um, And Ricky got pretty angry and kind of beat him. Um, I couldn't tell if he, like, really seriously injured him or if he just kind of, like, beat him in almost a, like still friendly way like no like screw you man like nah or like that's fucking Just gross like you know pushed him off of him or yeah out of his way or something. yeah and again this kid's 16 and jeffrey's 25 at this point so almost 10 years apart in age um but while they were driving around a little bit after that jeffrey angered ricky more and so ricky pulled over the car drug him out of it violently and viciously beat him bashed his head in um with his bare hands um, and eventually mutilated him by mm. severing his penis from his body, um, tossing it into a lake, and then discarding Jeffrey's dead body into a secluded area nearby. So that's crime number one. Um, we'll definitely table my theories. Oh, Actually, we're not going to table it too much because um, I'm going to go ahead and say Ricky We'll find out a little bit more later was known to hang around some areas that homosexuals tend to frequent. Um, so I think he was kind of warring with himself a little, which absolutely, absolutely we'll talk to. Totally sounds like it. So Jeffrey might have gotten the idea that like, oh, hey, this is like, right. this is a hookup type situation. I just wrote that down. Oh, like, did you? Okay. Why would he offer himself if, if it wasn't warranted? Absolutely. You know? So if that's true, if that's really what happened, if that wasn't Ricky's, you know, screwed up way of justifying this mm-hmm. murder... Um, 
then I would definitely lean more towards Ricky was super pissed off that this guy even alluded to that. Right. And he just went into a rage and murdered him. Um, so. As we all do. Again, moving on to his okay. life because there's not a cohesive timeline of everything. So in October of 1985, Ricky meets a female hitchhiker named Betty Jo Monroe. Um, I found her name to be different in a couple different sources. It was Montana in a few sources. It was Betty Jo and a few others. But the dates line up together, so it's definitely the same victim. Um, So we're going to go ahead and call her Betty Jo. Because that's the better one. It is. I like it. Um, He met her. She was hitchhiking. He offered to give her a stop ride. Stop hitchhiking. Everyone, Please stop hitchhiking. never <laughs> do that, ever. There's Uber now. Back then, you shouldn't, like, oh. It was 85. I'm still hitchhiking 70s. I get it, maybe. 85. 60s, but 85. Girl, come on. Like, the serial killers were right. a thing by then. Yeah, okay. so many had been arrested. Ugh. So, um, <laughs> he offered, and I saw things referring to him as having only one eye, but in all the pictures I've seen of him, his he eyes? has two eyes. I don't know. He kind of had that like weird, like lazy. One, thing going. but he definitely has at least a fake prosthetic eye, something, something. like that. Or like yeah. it is just kind of floating. Yeah, I don't know. And <laughs> in his younger days, he's not a terrible looking no. guy. So he offers to give her a ride and a place to shower and clean up, and she agrees. Um, while she's showering at his home, Sharon is at work. Um, he, in what I read, opened up the shower curtain. Asked if he could join her. They have consensual sex in the shower. They then move to the bedroom, have more consensual sex. And then he says, hey, I got to go pick up my wife from work. And so they go together to pick up Sharon from work. Um, At this point, Betty Jo was kind of under the agreement, I guess the unspoken agreement that, like, these guys were going to have a threesome. Um, I don't really like Betty Jo anymore. Yeah, she, I mean, she feels, I feel like she was kind of maybe the free spirit drifter, just like doing whatever. whatever, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find her age. Maybe I wrote it down a little later. She's at least in her early 20s, if not mid 20s. So, I mean, it was the 80s. Maybe it was old enough to party, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And they were um, a wild alcoholic. So I feel like definitely alcohol was probably involved. Um, He maybe offered her a beer or two. So they went to pick up Sharon from work, and they all went back to their Sharon and Ricky's shared home with plans for a threesome. Um, Betty Jo kind of got cold feet when she saw Sharon in the nude. You know, maybe that wasn't her thing. She kind of got cold feet, but Ricky and Sharon decided that they definitely wanted to do this. So they together tied her to the bed as she struggled. Um, Eventually, they drug her to the bathroom after they kind of got sick of her sick of how they were able to play with her while she was tied up to the bed. So they drug her to the bathroom um, where Ricky attempted to sodomize her. Um, While this, a massive struggle took place because she's no longer restrained. And during this, Sharon went to the kitchen. (laughs) Heck yeah, there's going to be a massive struggle. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You don't just sodomize Good for you for fighting, (laughs) Betty Jo. God. And then um, Sharon, sorry. Oh, oh, you'll... I'll probably learn to hate her more. There's a nice little... She's a... She's a treat. Gem, gem. Mm-hmm. So um, she, Sharon goes to the kitchen during the struggle in the bathroom with Ricky and Betty Jo, um, and she gets a knife, and she, without warning, drives the knife into Betty Jo's abdomen. Oh um, 
Ricky then took this as, oh, this is how we're partying now. So he went to the bedroom, got his pocket knife, and they both together repeatedly stabbed <laughs> Betty Joe to that death. That's kind of wimpy. Like, oh, let me go get my pocket oh, knife. Oh, right? I know. Like, this little pocket <laughs> knife. Oh, and I, I misspoke. They didn't stab her to death because he then had to go get a hammer, <gasps> and he bashed her head in three or four times. Um, I saw a tiny, kind of black and white crime scene photo from this, and it's pretty brutal. It's, it's very graphic, mm. um, very hardcore. Um, so they had at this point killed Betty Joe together, Sharon and Ricky. They had sex in her blood. Um, and I'm guessing over her corpse. Um, they cleaned up the bathroom, loaded her in the trunk of their car and dumped her in another secluded area. So much drugs. Like there has to be so much drugs involved. There isn't mention of drug use until a little bit later in this, but... It's mentioned with both of them, so I feel like, yeah, absolutely. Like, they they had to have been using this. Um, So her sick bloodlust, if she didn't know about um, the first murder he did, this is How would she? Right, yeah. Yeah, so. Which makes you kind of think maybe he did tell her because she was, like, kind of into it. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they were just fucked up together. And I maybe, I have some theories about that, too, on two different facets. Um, So they're, they're in this together. This is how they get off. This is... Um, I just kind of burped in the mic. I apologize. Um, the source I read said that they had insanely passionate, I'm going to say relations, even though that makes me want to vomit. It became kind of a, a, a driving force for them. Um, in November of 1985, so Betty Joe was murdered in October. So one month later. November of 1985, um, Ricky meets Sandra Bailey, who is 27 years old. They met at a club. Um, he took her back home. You know, I don't know if it was under the guise of a threesome or if it was just like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna go have sex because we met at this club. Um, but Sharon was waiting. They <laughs> almost exactly repeated the instance that they had with Betty Joe. So they stabbed her repeatedly. Um, I believe a hammer was used. So they bludgeoned her to death they stabbed her to death they had sex kind of near her body in the blood um but the sexual excitement this time wasn't as high as the first time Mm -hmm. so um they ended up disposing of her the same way so jump a little while jump an entire year to december of 1986 um, they, at this point, have absolutely started using intravenous drugs. Their alcoholism got, got worse. Um, their relationship had started to falter, from what I read, a little bit at this point. Mm-hmm. So they were definitely on a high from the first one. Another high from the second one, but the crash was harder and longer. Because um, now the body count is three for Ricky, two for Sharon and Ricky. Um, in December of 1986, Ricky meets a Fort Worth radio ad executive named Stephen Pfefferman. Um, I saw a couple of different... This is what I saw most about was yes. Stephen. Okay. I saw a couple of different things of where they met. Um, one of them was they met in kind of like a parking lot where homosexuals frequented. Another was they met at um, a place called Casino Beach, which was a known gay club. It's like the original grinder. It kind of is. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> is. And it was uh, apparently a breeding ground for uh, angry, closeted homosexuals to murder people. Nice. Um, not this particular club, though, from what I found. But that's where they met. I'm going to go with the gay club. Um, They had consensual sex. Um, Green Ricky dropped his car off at his house, 
and they rode back together to Stephen's place. Um, at Stephen's place, they drank a few beers. Um, Ricky, remember, is an alcoholic, so I'm sure he's wildly hammered by then. Um, but they have consensual sex again, and Ricky convinces Stephen to allow him to tie him to the bed. And this is when he stabs him to death. Um, he cuts him from sternum to scrotum. He slits his throat all the while, kind of saying in a ritualistic manner, I hate homosexuals. Um, he then castrates him and shoves his penis in his mouth uh, to muffle his, his screams and to muffle the noises he made. Um, after this, he took his money, ransacked his bedroom for anything of value, and fled in Pfefferman's car. He then I'm goes sorry. home to Sharon. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. My, I know. Like, if you guys could have seen me, my mouth is open for, like, a good, like, It was like, pretty agape, yeah. <laughs> Whoa. So uh, he goes home to Sharon after this, and he tells her what happens. Um, she calms him down. She kind of reassures him everything's going to be okay. And for the next couple of years, their alcohol abuse worsened even more. Um, they started abusing drugs even more, and Sharon eventually left kind of without a word. Um, good for her, though. I yeah. Mean, Good for her. I mean, she still sucks, but, you know. Except she struck a deal with the cops shortly after leaving. Um, from the timeline, I, be- I'm, I believe it was about a year, maybe close to two years after leaving him, kind of without a word and without ever contacting him again, she strikes a deal with the cops, um, which lands her 10 years probation because she claimed that she was abused and forced to participate in the crimes. Um, What she particularly got him on and sent the cops over to his home for was Stephen Pfefferman's murder. Um, Maybe because she didn't shine too much light on the other women, but Stephen Pfefferman was most recent. Stephen Pfefferman was a known person. He was... The, I mean, he, his body was found in his home, brutally murdered. Um, so we're going to go more into his arrest. Um, Fort Worth police say that his MO matches 8 to 12 other um, unsolved crimes throughout Texas, mostly in North Texas. Um, Detective Daniel LaRue said at some point, um, quoted, he left his mark all over the state. His particular M.O. was excessive stab wounds and sexual mutilation. Some of his victims had 50-plus stab wounds. Um, The trial actually sparked so much controversy and attention in Fort Worth, it had to be moved to Austin. Oh, to get, like, a fair trial, basically, for media attention or whatever. Definitely. Um, After they arrested him, he did confess um, he also confessed to stalking a 17-year-old girl at some point, so... Wait, what did he confess to? Just Stevens? And he... Or everything? Everything. Okay, He confessed Good. to the four that I mentioned. Okay. Um, he has not confessed to others, but we'll go into that a okay. little more, kind of I alludes sure to it. Was it. Just Stephen or not? No, yeah. Um, so he's tried for Betty Jo and Sandra's murders, and he's given two consecutive life sentences, He's also tried for Stephen Pfefferman's, and he's giving uh, for capital murder, and he's given the death sentence. Um, the defense used his child abuse as a huge play to get almost like an insanity type thing, mm-hmm. almost like it was an uncontrollable compulsion. There were multiple pictures 
Um, some of the murder weapons were located and confessions were given by Sharon, um, who, of course, you know, struck a deal with prosecution and by Ricky. Um, the evidence during the trial was so disturbing and brutal. Some of the jurors got physically ill and some of them, excuse me, some of them needed therapy afterwards. Um, so, but in order to receive the death penalty in Texas at the time, and this is in the very early 90s, so right 1990, um, the crime of murder had to be committed in the commission of another act. The, the defense attorney, David Bayes, said, in quotations, Ricky did, didn't kill Pfefferman just so he could rob or rape him. He killed him because it was just something he liked to do. So yeah. that was his defense attorney. So these defense attorneys, they're no, not they're trying sure. to, yeah, they're not trying no. to say, like, oh, he's innocent. They're just trying to avoid the death penalty mm-hmm. using these different ploys. Um, but Detective LaRue and the prosecuting attorney, Mark Barta, agreed that he had committed murder in commission with another crime because during confessions, he admitted to robbing his victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and fun fact, while awaiting trial, he had to be put on super vigilant watch because he tried to hang himself by his own t-shirt in his jail cell. So the death penalty is laid out for him on um, September 14th of 1990, which was actually, I'm sorry, one year after his indictment. So he was indicted in 1989. Um, Pfefferman's murder took place in 1986. So it took three years for Sharon to ultimately leave him and then Go to the cops. Um, I really, I couldn't find much on her. Honestly, I wanted to find statements. I wanted to find so much or her motivation for rolling on him. So there's this book written by Patricia Springer called Blood Rush. Um, I could see it was a book. I could see it was published. It was running for over $400 for a hardback copy on some website I found. I couldn't find an ebook. I couldn't find any remnants of it. So... I don't know what Total happened scam. to it. I, I would love to find this book, though, because she is a Texas true crime author, kind of an investigative journalist, um, and she had some personal ties to this case because, like I said, his MO matched pretty well to 8 to 12 different unsolved murders in North Texas or in Fort Worth at the time. Um, and one of her friend's daughters went missing. She was never found. Um, she actually went to interview Ricky in prison while he was awaiting his death penalty. Um, and he kind of, cool. they ended up having, like, from what I could find, a decent relationship, almost like a mother-child relationship. Um, and he eventually kind of opened up to her where he said, no, I didn't commit these crimes. But for the first few years, he kind of yanked her chain um, and led her to believe, like, maybe I did. And, like, you know, just being yeah, a really a big douchebag. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so... You know, that's a thing. I wish I could have found more information from that book, book specifically. Maybe maybe one day we'll find it and we can read it. Um, did you find it for sale? It's $22. What'd you use? Amazon. It's $22. I was on Amazon, I thought. Blood Rush. And then she has a flesh and blood one for 16 well, well, Cassie... Okay, paperback, it does say 88. Okay, so, clearly, so maybe I saw that. Clearly, this is kind of a big deal, but, yeah. like, no one really talked about it. Like, she has several other books, but Lots the Blood of Rush itself, 88 for paperback, which is used and new, 
mass market paperbacks 22 i don't know whatever Man, all right cassie doesn't know how to use the internet no, everybody but, no but not really though because i mean 88 bucks for a freaking book like, that's i would never pay means that that it's kind of i'm surprised we haven't heard of it right anymore if it's that mm-hmm. uh expensive yeah so um there were a few appeals um january of 1994 there was a habeas relief appeal and then october 3rd 1997 he got a brief stay for five days Um, before his execution. He was finally executed on October 8th, 1997 at the age of 36. Executed again for the murder of Stephen Pfefferman um, and he had life in prison for the two murders of Betty Jo and Sandra. Jeffrey Davis's murder um, was not brought to court. I'm not sure why. I wish I knew. Maybe um, when I buy this book for $88, I'll know why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm going to leave this with two quotes from him. Um, One, when he got arrested, which was, they all deserved it. They were kind of the dregs of society. And then quoted at his execution... um, death by lethal injection injection pronounced dead after seven minutes he says i want to thank the lord for giving me this opportunity to get to know him Mm -hmm. he has shown me a lot and he has changed me in the past two months okay (sighs) i've been in prison eight and a half years and on death row for seven i have not gotten into any trouble i feel like i am not a threat to society anymore i feel like my punishment is over but my friends are now being punished i thank the lord for all he has done for me I do want to tell thee, and at that point, lethal injection took him. Um, so oh, that's annoying. Yeah. Tell the who. Tell the what. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there were people that definitely, they were happy that he was put to death, despite what he said, because they were the sisters. They were the mm-hmm. mothers. They were of the victims. Okay. Um, so maybe he was about to apologize to them. I don't know. Because they were there. They were definitely there. I would totally be there. Oh, for sure. Oh, man. I mean, I would kind of be there to watch somebody I didn't have right. a connection to. Just because it's I interesting. Mean. Yeah, I just kind of want to see what yeah. goes down and yeah. what happens. Um, so that's the story of Ricky that Lee Green. the story of my mom shutting the door. <laughs> So he was described as kind of a Jekyll and Hyde murderer. Um, It would be personality switch. It would just crazy fits of rage, Mm -hmm. everything. I definitely believe that what his first known murder was was charged by deep-rooted feelings of, I'm gay, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm gay, maybe I'm not. And this guy, Jeffrey, was kind of bringing them up in him, and then it boiled over. And then that's why the murder at the inn, this brutal, yeah. horrifying murder. That was awful. It was after consensual sex with another man. Yeah. And so that's ultimately what gets him caught. And that's ultimately why Sharon leaves him because Sharon's yeah. not into him murdering dudes for his sexual right. pleasure. She's into murdering females with him. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's to me, obviously what's happening. Hey guys, we experienced some technical difficulties Um, when recording last night. I kind of got a good chunk way through my murder and it all got messed up and it already sounded kind of wonky with my dog. And so I kind of just wanted to make this end at least on a good note. So I'm going to redo my murder since it was all kind of messed up anyway. Um, And then kind of splice everything together. So I apologize for the weird, um, abrupt break in the conversation. 
Um, so I'll go ahead and get into my murder. This is set in Houston um, around Christmas time in 2010. Um, if you follow us on Instagram, you will be able to tell now why there was one that said Merry Christmas on one of the photos that I had posted. Um, so maybe this will all kind of make sense now. Um, so Angela Davis, she reported her son, Jonathan Foster, missing after receiving multiple suspicious phone calls at her work on Christmas Eve. She and her son had recently moved out of her husband's house after the abuse that she and her son personally faced. This was her current husband, not the father of Jonathan, um, who is Richard Foster. He evidently left when Jonathan was around four. Angela kind of personally, she struggled with some drug issues and some minor drug charges in the years prior. Um, evidently, CPS had also been called twice in the past before Jonathan's death to assess the living conditions of Jonathan and his half-sister for some potential uh, abuse and neglect. So the family dynamic wasn't exactly on point, but at the same time, um, you know, everyone makes mistakes. But clearly, she was trying to get her life together. She was working. Um, but he hadn't always lived with his mom. In fact, he had only been in Houston uh, with his mom again since 2009. He spent most of his youth with his other family members in Missouri. Um, but like I said, after just a few short weeks of living with his mom and stepfather, Jonathan was slapped by David Davis, who is the stepfather. That's uh, his full name. And then um, this is when she decides to move out and she begins living in, from what I've seen in reports, there's kind of mixed um, reviews, I guess, if it was an apartment or a duplex or a cottage, I've even heard that thrown in there. Um, <clears throat> but she moved out and again, I'm not, I'm just going to call it a duplex. Um, and she lived next to her friend, um, Sharon and Murado. Um, and this was not far from the previous residence that she had with David, um, so Angela and Sharon both had to work that day. She, uh, reluctantly left Jonathan at home, but she knew she would be home around 2 PM. So, you know, it's obviously Christmas time, Christmas break. He didn't have anywhere else to be. Um, he wasn't in school, you know, for that day. Um, so he just kind of had to fend for himself, I guess. Um, and this is when later that morning and the afternoon, she began receiving odd phone calls at her job. She said that it was a woman with a rough or disguised voice on the other end. Angela is quoted um, that this is kind of how her last phone call with the person goes. So Angela said a woman answered and she told the woman that Jonathan's mom, that she was Jonathan's mom. She heard a woman say, is your mama's name Angela? And Angela heard Jonathan say, yes, ma'am. My mama's name is Angela. And then the phone went dead. So she clearly hears... Um, you know, another person with her son, and it was the last phone call that she received that day. <clears throat> so, not good news, I guess. But um, another phone call that's testified by a coworker. Her name is Lois Sims. Um, she answered the phone that day, and she said that the phone call went like this: "If you don't get her now, something's going to happen. He won't be here for long." She tried to, you know, comply with the woman's request, but she hung up. Uh, the woman hung up, and then this is when Angela decides to, you know, leave her job, head back to her house. And when she does, she is, she finds her son missing. Um, no reports stated any evidence of struggle or foul play. Um, nothing weird seemed to have happened at the house. Um, police initially assumed that the husband slash stepfather, uh, David Davis. Um, was responsible for the potential kidnapping, but after ext extensive questioning, um, the police pretty much, they 
rule him out, and they turned to their second suspect, um, which were the sex offenders of the Houston area. I personally think that this was a smart avenue to take because I think that most people will say, oh, you know, he'll turn up or he's a runaway and blah, 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 and kind of leave it at that because he was kind of on the brink of his teenage years. Um, But yeah, I'm glad that they tried to not just leave it alone, that they actually went a little bit further. Uh, David says that he stopped by the duplex to check on Jonathan, knowing that Angela had to be at work that day, and he comes in around 145, um, and Angela is supposed to be home around 2, so I think that's kind of like, why are you, why didn't you go and check on him maybe earlier? Why wait till the last 15 minutes of when he would be alone? But anyway, he claims that the child was playing games on the computer and everything was fine. Um, the police evidently interviewed over 50 sex offenders in the area with no leads, um, so it didn't go anywhere. And now on December 28th, 2010, just a few days after uh, his mother <clears throat> finds him missing, the canine unit finds a young boy's body in a ditch about four miles from Jonathan's home. Dental records would, would unfortunately show the victim to be 12-year-old Jonathan Foster. His body was horribly charred due to being killed with a blowtorch, wrapped in carpet, and dumped on the side of the road. They would also find a welding torch near his body at the scene that they marked as possible evidence or murder weapon. Um, I wasn't able to find any other option that could have been the cause of death, which is kind of even more terrifying to me because it kind of shows you the, um, I don't know, the mindset of the killer. And most people, I think, burning someone alive would be a little hesitant to do. I think that you might um, hit someone over the head or shoot them and then you burn them to possibly, you know, cover evidence or identification of the body. But to burn them alive is pretty astounding to me. Um, You know, maybe he was rendered unconscious and then hit in the head or maybe, you know, he had drugs in his system. But, you know, I didn't find anything like that in the reading that I found. So... Um, good news is, is that police were able to retrieve video footage from a building across from the dump site, which we kind of came like the big break in the case, uh, showed an African-American person exiting a silver truck and removing what appeared to be a body from the bed of the truck and placing it in the ditch on Christmas Eve. They soon identified the person to be Mona Nelson. So a little bit about Mona, um, This is quoted by her mother. She started out on a good path. She was a tomboy who loved sports and volunteered at the MLK Community Center as a teenager. Um, She would actually kind of grow up to be a fairly decent small-time boxer. That was kind of her path that she took. Um, Didn't really go anywhere. Um, At 15, she met her future husband, Mike Nelson, a construction worker. At age 16, she was pregnant and a high school dropout. Uh, two months after they married, she had twins, a boy and a girl. They were born three months premature. Um, and then by the time she was 19, she was arrested in the aggravated robbery of a barbecue restaurant. Uh, she told the police that a man forced her to do it and that she feared he was going to hurt her if she didn't. Um, she pled no contest and was given 10 years of deferred adjudication, which would revert to prison time if she committed another crime. Um, but the next, for the next 20 some odd years, she would be arrested nearly a dozen more times in minor incidents ranging from um, criminal mischief, theft by check, and operating a stolen vehicle, and marijuana possession. I think theft by check is kind of funny just because, you know, checks are kind of a 
dinosaur form of payment. But anyway, it just shows you kind of the time, I guess. Anyway, uh, Nelson divorced and her children lived with their father. She began a relationship with a woman, Danita Morris, and they lived together as a couple for about 10 years and they raised Morris's children out in East Texas. Um, She was arrested in 2001. Uh, She was accused of assaulting Danita and three neighborhood children she was babysitting, Um, not Danita's children, um, just some other kids. And the charges would be dropped. And I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, obviously there's there's a difference of assault versus sexual assault. I know some people in some situations can wrap it into one thing, but I'm pretty sure... I didn't see anything different say stating that it was sexual assault. So I think that maybe she just was getting physical um, with Danita and the kids were involved in some shape or form um, violently, I guess. Um, I feel like that if it was Danita's own children that were, you know, in the assault, involved in the assault, maybe she wouldn't have dropped the charges. I really don't know um, why <laughs> you drop charges if it's involved, you know, with children, but who knows? I, we don't know. I wasn't there. Um, and I'm prefacing kind of her story with that because it'll kind of come into play later. Um, although Jonathan's mother claims to have never met Mona prior, uh, Mona just so happened to be a friend of Sharon and Murata, which was the neighbor slash friend that Angela and Jonathan were living next to. Um, and Mona and Sharon had been allegedly in a romantic relationship in the past And uh, reports say that she was an apartment complex maintenance worker and possibly actually worked at the complex Jonathan and Angela lived at. Um, She was also a welder. She collected scrap metal at various apartment properties and was allowed to keep half of what she could get for it. While searching Mona's home, they find um, detectives find cords similar to the type that are wrapped around Jonathan's body. They also recover an acetylene tank, which is used in welding. And sections of uh, her carpet had been recently burned. And then they also found a stun gun slash taser thing in her truck. Um, the day after Mona is arrested, a reporter interviews her at the Harris County Jail. She told the reporter that one of Jonathan's family members on Christmas Eve had asked her to dump the contents of a garbage container. The unnamed relative paid her $20 for the job, and she claimed that she had been drunk on vodka and had no idea what was in the plastic container. She's quoted saying, I didn't know what it what was in it until they were showing me pictures in the interrogation room. I'm not a monster, she said. I have five grandchildren. I love kids. Since her arrest, a much more uh, kind of a really bad perception of her has kind of come into the media. They were um, kind of doing a character assassination of her, I personally feel. Um, They said that her Facebook page described this weird affinity for the movie Saw. Um, Her boxing name was Iron Fist. Um, But I mean, if you take those things out of the context of her being, you know, charged for this kid's murder, it's kind of like, well, I like the movie Saw. You know, it doesn't mean that I killed a 12-year-old, you know. I mean, at least it's not the only contributing factor. And I think that just because you like a horror movie and just because you used to be a boxer doesn't mean that you killed someone, but it could mean you killed someone. So I just, I guess I think that it, it poisons the mind of the potential jury pool. It poisons the the media content. And I just don't necessarily think that it's really fair to kind of do that kind of thing. The problem is, is with her kind of story or theory, um, 
There's no container. She claims there was this garbage container that she dumped out there. Um, I don't think that there, what I found, there was nothing found at the crime scene um, where his body was. They couldn't find any, you know, this supposed um, phantom garbage container. Uh, The family members that she mentioned that had potentially, you know, paid her 20 bucks to go do this, um, they were interrogated and they all had solid alibis. Um, Early reports, like I said, they cast suspicion on Jonathan's stepfather, but he's captured on a security video at a nearby bar. And I think that that was smart to not just take his word for it, but, you know, have physical or evidence of him being physically somewhere else. Um, And I kind of, I personally believe that his alibi is true, just seeing as how many people do frequent bars around the holidays. um, I feel like it's pretty valid on top of the fact that I feel like it improves the odds of more than just, you know, one person seeing him. Um, If there's multiple people at a bar, obviously, if you can get people to remember, um, you know, you have multiple witnesses. Um, the police said, however, you know, the investigation was a little complicated because family members did change their stories and gave, you know, conflicting statements on the day of his disappearance. Um, for instance, from what I read, Angela, she didn't, you know, she didn't want to tell the police that she had left her son alone. It kind of looks bad. Um, she told them that he was with her roommate, Sharon. So I get that, you know, she probably didn't think that something like this was going to happen, that maybe he did just run away or, you know got lost, whatever, and would come back. And so she was like, I'm not going to tell him that I just left him there because then it makes me look bad. But um, I see how, you know, she didn't think that he, he would be dead and that it would just be this huge, horrible thing that happened to him. So I see how it hindered the investigation and it also kind of made her look suspect and honestly could have even made Sharon look bad. Um, and it just kind of sets them back on their timeline. So um I guess that's just kind of, like I said, a for instance of what they mean when not everyone was super cooperative. <coughs> okay, so we can go into the trial. Uh, her trial wouldn't begin until August of 2013, so a decent amount of time has gone by. Um, this is kind of interesting. She waived her right to a jury trial and instead asked for a bench trial. So this is kind of when the judge would basically be her only jury member, essentially. Um, I personally, if I was on trial for murder or really on trial for anything, I really wouldn't mind this type of trial. I feel like you're avoiding, you know, jury selection and, and if you don't get, this sounds bad, but maybe you get stuck with some uneducated jurors and super emotional jurors. And, you know, it kind of at least helps you not have to deal. Well, it saves time for one. And then it also kind of weeds out the whole process of just kind of getting screwed over. I've, I've just seen so many, um, trials that have been skewed and seem to be really messed up because of having racist jurors and vengeful jurors and, like I said, emotional jurors that just base everything off of a personal opinion, not the evidence. So I really don't see, I'm, I don't know, maybe because they think that um, the judge is too too smart and will see right through everything. But I think that at least if you're innocent, hopefully the evidence would shine through and you wouldn't get stuck with people that would be casting doubt on you just because of personal opinion. And instead you have a judge that would hopefully, you know, go based off of the law and what is actually happening. Um, But that's just my opinion. 
So her attorney, Alan Tanner, argued that the interrogating officers had violated his client's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. He also asserted that her statements had uh, not been given voluntarily and they were inadmissible in court. He kept persisting with this argument and he kind of just made it his main defense. Um, I feel like it's kind of lame. I feel like he was grasping at straws for anything because he really didn't have a defense. Um, in a way, I kind of respect that. You know, you're trying to do whatever you can for your, you know, client or de- the defendant, however you want to put it. Um, but I think at some point he should have just got her to plead guilty and see if the judge would kind of like throw her a bone. I think he was really pushing for a mistrial or some sort of sympathy. Um, <clears throat> but. I guess he didn't want to let it go. Um, And I kind of hate defense attorneys for that reason. Um, I really get concerned when it's like, how can you defend someone knowing they either, one, admitted to the crime, or two, you at least know that it's pretty obvious that they committed the crime. And I get that everyone has their right to a fair trial and all of that stuff, but I guess just I don't know how... um, I don't know how someone can literally say, hey, I'm doing my job and I I feel like it's interfering with the process of justice and I I know there's no way to really determine if, you know, anyone's telling the truth or not, whatever, but I just, I feel like, (laughs) I literally wrote down, it's like there's a how to be a lying piece of shit and not have guilt about it 101 in law school. Um, Like it's something that they inbreed in them, I don't know. I know there's always doubt, and I know that, you know, she didn't confess to this crime, um, but, you know, say she did, you know, this guy's going to still try and convince the judge that she's innocent and will attempt to get her free. And I know these lawyers aren't stupid. I know that they have to, you know, kind of reach for the highest beneficial and positive sentencing for their client and then work their way down. But I guess to be so, you know, sleazy and uncompassionate and heartless towards the victim and their families is just really hard for me to grasp. I think that be a defense attorney all that you want or, you know, whatever, but like maybe pick cases that you really feel some reasonable doubt when it comes to it or pick cases with documented confessions. So at least you're not sitting there defending a lying shit bag. But it was weird because Cassie actually had a completely different reaction. She was like, no, I, I find what you say is interesting, but I'm more on the side of defense attorneys and not prosecutors. So I like that she and I have a different opinion. I'm more for the prosecution side and she's more for like, no, you know, everyone deserves a, you know, defense. And there are a lot of cases that, um, you need a good defense attorney because you didn't do it. It's all the people that actually are being, you know, charged with something they didn't do. So you need those kind of slimy suckers to, be there to defend you when, you know, you are probably innocent. So kind of interesting perspective on that, I guess. Um, So starting talking about the prosecution, um, one of the prosecutors, Connie Spence, she admitted that she would not be establishing motive for Jonathan's murder. And I put this in parentheses. I thought this was like really, really interesting. Um, I didn't know this. So while prosecutors prefer to have motive evidence, it is not a legal requirement for a murder conviction. All the state has to prove is criminal intent. And uh, in practicing fundamental law, the why is not relevant. So I'll go into this later, but I did think that that was pretty interesting that, you know, the burden of proof, they always say it's, you know, either on the prosecution or it's on the defense. So I think that that's kind of interesting that you don't really have to prove why you just kind of have to give the who and the how or something like that. So um, 
I feel like there are so many cases that, you know, have been won in either direction based on motive. Um, I think I mentioned this when we were talking, she and I were talking about it, that like Scott Peterson, you know, they literally found zero physical evidence, but since he had this, you know, alleged affair, um, that shows motive, you know, in some people's eyes and it means he killed his wife. So it's like, no, not necessarily. Just like how I said that she liked the movie Saw, um, doesn't mean she killed anyone. I feel like you need to have physical evidence for things and then let motive come into play later. Um, you, I feel like it's kind of unfair to base everything on motive. But I'm sure there are cases out there where if you know they didn't at least try to put motive as their main uh, defense, then you know killers would go free all the time. So I don't know. It's, it's a tricky situation. She claimed that she would be able to prove that sometime between 2.15 and 6.08 p.m. on December 24th, 2010, Mona Nelson tortured and killed uh, Jonathan, 12-year-old Jonathan Foster with a blowtorch at her home, then dumped his charred remains in a ditch. She said that one of the key pieces of evidence would um, that she would introduce involved a sweatshirt found in a trash can near Mona's home and that the garment bore traces of Mona's blood. I feel like that's a pretty strong... Um, you know, case that she has against Mona. Um, so it's kind of ironic when I'll talk about it later, but the defense's theory is just so outrageous. Anyway, um, the defense's response was that he, you know, he remained or he reminded the judge that the stepfather had openly admitted that he had basically, you know, he was the last person to ever see Jonathan before he disappeared. And, you know, he had a rocky relationship with Angela. It could have been a revenge killing, um, you know, for anger towards Angela. And he, um, claimed in court that Jonathan had come between David and Angela, which might've been, you know, motive behind the murder. And all Mona did was dispose of the contents of a garbage can that had been given, had been given to her. Um, so the victim's mother, Angela, took the stand as the state's first witness. She was followed by several detectives who testified about the physical evidence that they had recovered from Mona's home and how it related to the evidence found near Jonathan's body. Um, David Davis, the stepfather, took the stand and admitted that he had hit the victim's mother, Angela, um, but he said he had never harmed Jonathan himself, even though, like I said earlier, Angela had mentioned him slapping Jonathan. So I guess, um, I don't know if he was just trying to avoid being, uh, having the finger pointed at him in this or what, but whatever, I guess it, it doesn't matter. At least he was kind of honest. So moving on to another, um, witness that they bring on the stand, which is Lois Sims, the supervisor at the meat market, who I mentioned before, she had taken that phone call during the afternoon, um, the fellow employee. Um, she describes the caller as an angry, foul-mouthed woman. And then um, defense attorney Tanner pointed out that two meat market supervisors had described the caller as a white woman. So there's a lot of like mis- construing of the phone calls, but also there's common, um, you know, the angry foul mouth, you know, probably a woman, but like, you know, disguised and, and, and rough sound. Um, but then to say that it sounds like a white woman, I don't know, kind of weird. I don't know. I, I'll comment on it later. <laughs> um, 
More evidence comes into play on August 19th, 2013. Two HPD canine officers testified that three cadaver, cadaver dogs, not just one, but three, had reacted strongly to a box of burned carpeting at Nelson's house. One of the officers said there was a strong odor of human remains there. Now, I don't know if the carpet was burned inside of a box or carpet was cut in the shape of a box and then burned. I'm not really sure if that matters, but I kind of want to know maybe she cut out the carpet and tried to get rid of it as evidence, or maybe that was where he was standing and it was burned. Um, And it was just like in the shape of a box, like a square, if you will. I don't know if that really struck as interesting to anyone else, but I kind of wanted to know. Um, Anyway... An arborist, which is a tree expert, testified that leaves at the dump site had come from oak trees, and there were no such trees where Jonathan's body had been recovered, but around Mona's home, there were seven trees of this kind. Um, This is like super forensic files-y to me, because it's like they can get gravel off of a freaking shoe imprint, and the gravel is only found in one spot of town. Like, it's it's kind of stuff like that. I think that's really interesting. Um, It's strange to me about the leaves because it's like, were the leaves just in her truck bed or did she toss them on the ground and then wrap them up in the carpet and the leaves kind of rolled in with him? Um, I don't know. I I don't really think it matters necessarily, but I kind of just wondered if she was super careless and literally did just throw them on the ground and try and wrap them up or how that kind of happened. But um, I know that the leaves and the carpet thing could be considered a circumstantial, but I'm kind of okay with it. (laughs) Uh, The following day, a forensic scientist from the FBI crime laboratory testified that a Looney Tunes sweatshirt that belonged to Jonathan recovered from Mona's trash can contained Mona's blood and DNA. And then two other DNA experts agreed with this analysis. So you have three people, you know, not just one that you paid. You have three experts agreeing that this is real and um, that the presence of this trace evidence on the sweatshirt suggested the victim had put up a fight. Um, I remember when I was like typing this out, <laughs> I was like, you know what? Good for him. Like, I mean, good for him regardless, but I'm glad he tried to put up a fight, obviously, but I was going to write out, like, I wonder if they found any scratch marks on her, but then I was like, oh yeah, they didn't arrest her until a year later. I'm an idiot. So Friday morning, August 23rd, the prosecution rests its case. Um, and then the next day, defense attorney Alan Tanner delivers his closing arguments to the judge. Um, he says, Mona Nelson had absolutely no motive to kill Jonathan Foster. They cert- This is like, this guy has like the worst sentence structure. I don't know. I mean, I probably do too, but this is really funny. They searched and searched for a motive and there's no reason why she would have killed that boy. And referring to David Davis, the estranged husband, Tanner said, he wanted to get her back and he told people at work that Jonathan is the root of all of his problems. The prosecution's case got weaker and weaker. There are more and more unanswered questions now than there were at the beginning. Anybody else notice that he repeats his words, searched and searched, weaker and weaker, more and more. It's like he doesn't know what else to say in his closing argument because he has nothing else. When it came her turn to address the judge, Prosecutor Spence said, and this is like so clear, and I just like love this lady for this because clearly Alan Tanner, he was just rambling, like I said, searched and searched and blah, blah, blah. Um, so Connie says the defendant took Jonathan Foster back to her house and killed him. We'll never know how she killed him because she burned his body to the point where you can't tell. And that's literally it, which kind of goes with my theory earlier or question earlier of like, was there a different way that she killed him or was it a burning alive situation? 
I feel like burning someone alive is almost kind of like strangling them. It kind of, it takes a lot longer than you might think. I think with burning, your body goes into this sort of state of, you know, I don't know. I feel like he wouldn't have just stood there, you know, because it, it's not like you get killed immediately, like a bullet or hanging or, or you know, whatever, a stab wound. Um, I think that it takes a minute and you're going to try and escape and fight off. It's your natural kind of instinct. So I feel like he had to have been incapacitated in some shape or form. I don't know. Um, anyway, like she said, we'll never know because he is completely burnt to a crisp. Um, on August 26th, Judge Janine Barr found Mona Nelson guilty as charged. She imposed the automatic sentence of life without parole. And after hearing the verdict, Mona said, I'm innocent and I maintain my innocence. I wouldn't harm anybody. Well, that's a lie because does anyone remember just a few minutes ago, I said that she, you know, assaulted her girlfriend and the three kids and it was just dropped. So like she has not just, you know, a a history of maybe violent interests like saw and boxing and all that bullshit that doesn't matter. But the fact that she has 20 previous crimes under her belt, maybe they weren't all, you know, violent crimes, but she has at least one and it involved kids. So I feel like that's kind of, it stands out a little bit. I don't know. It's not, I don't think it should go unnoticed, I guess I'm trying to say. Um, Her defense attorney told reporters he would file an appeal on the grounds of insufficient evidence. We quote, we believe someone else kidnapped this child and someone else killed this child. And then on March 19th, 2015, a few years later, a three-judge panel on the 4th District Texas Court of Appeals affirmed that Mona Nelson's capital murder conviction was staying right where it's at. So um, her appeal was a flop. Um, The general trial theory, now this isn't questions and theories hour yet, but this is kind of a general theory, like I said, um, from the prosecution. It is believed that Mona entered the duplex looking for Sharon for most likely kind of like a drug or sexual exchange, possibly both. Um, Some theorize it could have been a revenge killing. Mona, you know, she admits to being drunk on vodka, so perhaps she was drunk and she was pissed off and she thought that Angela and Sharon were an item and, you know, it doesn't really sit well with Mona. So, you know, she reacts in the only way she can think of. She's not in the best state of mind. Um, I think that's really sad if that was the case, but the kind of the most like fucked up part for me is, um, Angela Davis says, you know, she never met Nelson, but she finally does meet her, uh, not in the courtroom. Um, this happens very shortly after he goes missing. Um, Mona shows up at the duplex around 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve, an hour or so after she supposedly captured on video <clears throat> dumping the body. She reportedly offered to look for Jonathan, saying she had stopped by earlier in the day before he disappeared looking for Sharon. She said Jonathan answered the door shirtless, and she suspected someone else was in the house. I don't know if anyone just got like super creeped out with that statement of being the child being shirtless. Um, <clears throat> I literally, I wrote like what the actual fuck with four question marks. Um, why does it matter if the kid's shirtless? Is that no one? I obviously you can't tell me cause this is me talking, but I think that that's really strange. I think it's a random fact to throw in. Um, you know, they say the bigger or excuse me, the more details, the bigger, the lie. I think that 
it was maybe it was an innocent like toss in of information, but like it's Christmas, it gets kind of chilly in Houston, you know. I don't know, like why was he shirtless? That's that's strange. I don't I don't know. It's gross. Um, I don't know why she decided to add that information in there. Maybe I'm overreacting, but like I I think that's weird. Um, you know, if this happened because of a drug deal gone bad rather than a pedophile murdering a child, then I, I really don't know what's worse. I think they're both pretty pathetic. Um, a child was senselessly murdered because this lady was, she was just trying to get high or she was jealous or she liked kids too much or, you know, maybe she was really paid to do it, but she couldn't even get the details of her story. Right. You know, like container, no container. Like, do we know, um, let me say I was paid to take out some trash, but I leave my carpet burned and leave the blowtorch right next to the child and not properly dispose of his sweatshirt. Like the list goes on and on. Plus she came back to the scene of the crime, which is like psychopath 101. Like you go back to make sure you're not caught or you, you know, go to see the police investigating and you get this high from knowing that they've seen the damage that you've caused. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm giving her too much credit and she's not that smart, but she's just too fucking stupid to figure it out. We know she's good at that. Um, you know, she blamed her robbery charge on someone else. So when the one at the barbecue restaurant, she, you know, she, she said that the, the guy forced her to do it or whatever. So, um, I, it doesn't surprise me that she, is trying to kind of blame someone else for Jonathan's death and has a complete shit alibi and like set of excuses. So it's kind of, like I said, not surprising. She claims that the guy threatened her, yet she has committed so many other crimes. So it's like, did a man threaten you when you committed all of those things too? I don't know. I think she's just a really unsophisticated criminal. And it's like, girl, if you would have just avoided the video camera, like filming you, if you were just observant enough to be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't dump them four miles from my house and his house. And clearly there's a place of business filming me. Like you just see how kind of an idiot, I don't know. She just kind of sucks <laughs> on a lot of levels. Okay. So my questions and theories, yay, it's time. Um, my questions are very few because I do think that this case is open and shut, not only because of the phone calls, but the evidence at her home um, and then the video surveillance and her past. So I think it all kind of cohesively comes together that it's pretty obvious it's her. Um, my questions are really more towards the law aspect of things and how ridiculous the defense is. Um, you know, she kept saying about the container and like, I wonder in the um, trial, like, was there ever a container at least provided as evidence on video or in the discovery file, anything like that to back up her story? And, you know, based on what I've read, I don't believe any evidence was presented on the defense's part. So it's kind of like, dude, why don't you tell her to shut up and stop talking about this freaking container that, you know, isn't going to just appear or never was. I just think that's kind of funny. Like, if you immediately get a, get arrested and charged for this, you'd think that your lawyer, lawyer would be like, okay, let's get our facts right and story straight and stop talking about a goddamn container, but whatever. Um, and then this is more just like a comment on the defense's claim of the meat market woman saying she sounded white. Um, <laughs> like I know that, uh, how, how should I say this? Is there voice, I mean, I know that there's voice recognition, but is there like audible race recognition? I don't think that that's a thing. Um, if it is, then that'd be cool. But like, I know that there are speech patterns for nationalities and then there are, you know, parts of the country and even down to like the specific, you know, state you live in and area within that state. And 
whatever. And like, that's cool. There's like a dialect and people can pick out you live on this street in London and that person lives on that street. But for the defense to be able to use that statement from Lois Sims and the other employee, you know, that she sounded white. uh, I feel like that is so inadmissible and like, Maybe it was allowed because it was just a bench trial and they don't have 12 other people's racial opinions to worry about. And I just think it's dumb regardless. Like, I don't get how, I don't know. I don't get how that can be thrown in there. I just think that it's dumb. Um, Yeah. Some men sound like women and some women sound like men and everything in between. So I don't really think that that was relevant. Like, obviously they were wrong because clearly she wasn't white. But um, I found actually a really interesting um, thing online. Uh, It was, I'm not sure if it was a photo that was made for like a newspaper or a poster or whatever, but um, I'll post it on Instagram, but it said, black blowtorches white kid on Christmas Eve. And the words black, white, and Christmas Eve were all in capital letters. And I just thought, oh my God, they're trying to make this about so many things like it, the big word that should have been capitalized was kid. Like make it about the victim. Stop like, I don't know. They were, does that make sense to anybody? Like why are they focusing on the race of the people? And then, oh my God, it's on Christmas Eve too. Like it sucks no matter what day of the year it is. Like get over it. Come on people. I don't know. It annoyed me. Um, and then I think this is my biggest question uh, is how does the defense think that there's a lack of evidence? Cause he said, I'm going to submit an appeal because there's no, there's a lack of evidence. I think that that's crap. Like I don't, I really have like nothing else to say. I would like to know, does he think that her state, does he really think that her statements were given involuntarily? Were her rights not read to her? Was she interrogated for too long? Like I could see how you could surmise maybe like a forced confession or a forced accountability for the crime and claim it as involuntary, but like she didn't even admit to the right crime, you know, like why admit to any of it at that point? Like, oh, hey, Mona, we found a body in a ditch. Well, you know, I took out some trash, but I don't know nothing about a body, y'all. Like, I just, I just, there was a container and like, it was fine. Like, are there recordings of her interrogation to like actually corroborate the involuntarily, you know, giving of a statement? I don't know. I just think that's, I think it's kind of a cop out. Maybe I just need to get more information on it. But I just think it's funny that he says there's a lack of evidence, but like there's still so much when technically... Like, you could say that no evidence was found because, you know, he was fucking burnt to a crisp, you know, but there's still DNA, there's blood, there's carpet, there's video recordings, there's leaves, cord, wire, welding materials, her freaking evidence in her apartment. Like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Like, to me, it sounds like she needs a more competent attorney if she wants to succeed in future future appeals. Um, That's what there's a lack of, not evidence, but lack of a smart attorney is the problem. Um, and it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be me unless I kind of pushed the envelope a little bit on this case and kind of got super speculatory, if that's even a word. Um, so if you don't want to take this case for face value and you want to kind of, um, conspiracy theory with me for a second, my only concern I have and like I said, this is me kind of pushing it. But I questioned the dad's time frame, just like I did in the last case. Um, did he actually go and see if Jonathan was okay? Like I said, 
you know, 15 minutes before she's supposed to arrive kind of is weird to me. Maybe did Angela call David after the odd phone calls that she received earlier in the day and was like, hey, I know you're right nearby. Can you please just go and check on him? Um, <clears throat> if she did call him, why didn't she corroborate that when you know she and he were questioned? It does look a little um, kind of suspicious, but... If she didn't call him, you know, why would he voluntarily go over there to see I, to see either of them, you know, if, if they were technically on the outs, if she had just moved out, you know, not that long ago, you know, I know it's Christmas Eve, um, but if Angela and Jonathan had just moved out because David was beating on them just a couple weeks prior, I highly doubt he would have just gone over there without asking or being asked. And maybe that's just me thinking in like super naive terms, but, um, I just, I don't think he would just randomly go over there. Even if it was, Hey, I'm just dropping off a Christmas gift or whatever. I don't know. I think it's kind of strange. He's claiming 145, right? So the kid was fine playing games. No problem. I kind of want to know when she started getting the phone calls because her last one, if I didn't state this, state this before, she said she gets it close to the 2 p.m. mark because she said she got a phone call just a few minutes before she was pulling up at the house. So that one that I initially had stated at the beginning about her hearing the woman and her son, it was closer to 2 because that's when she showed back up at her home. So were the calls documented you know, from Mona's cell phone or was it Angela's home phone? Um, if they had one, I mean, if you think that they had one, maybe Jonathan would have tried to use it to get help if, you know, the time kind of allotted for that. I know he's only 12, but at the same time, he's not six where he's stupid. Not that six-year-olds are stupid. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think he he could have uh, deduced from the situation, this is weird. I kind of want to call my mom, but maybe, like I said, the time wasn't available. Um <clears throat> What about cell phone records or cell phone pings? You know, um, did they actually test and see if any of that stuff actually came from the house? Did, where was it pinging off of? Did she even have a cell phone? I don't know. Um, that would be interesting to find out. I feel like it would kind of also go in the state's defense, at least. Um, if David sticks to this 145 sort of thing and he says, you know, he was... If the prosecution says that he was killed, kidnapped and killed between 2.15 and 6.08, that leaves 15 minutes before Angela gets home and finds him missing. So it kind of makes the abduction time window and the phone call thing not add up to me. So if David said nobody was there at 1.45 and Jonathan was chilling by himself, how did Angela receive phone calls from a woman and hear her son alive before 1.45? if David claims that the house was empty and Jonathan was fine. You'd think he could mention, hey, David, there's a woman in the other room looking for mom. You know, like, did she come over to just do the phone calls, hear David coming in and hide, and then just take Jonathan immediately after to avoid being caught? Um, to me, that's <clears throat> kind of the only way it could work out. Um I can't really sit here and ask, you know, why didn't Jonathan say anything about an unfamiliar woman in the house when his stepdad came over? Because that's uh, a little kind of victim shaming, victim blaming. Um, but maybe he just really didn't think much of it. Maybe he thought, well, they have friends over all the time. Maybe she told him, okay, go sit in the room and act like you're playing games and don't say anything or I'll hurt you. You know, maybe there was a threat involved in some way. 
Um, but I think she basically just got really lucky, especially if David wasn't involved. Um, because unless Jonathan told her what time his mom was going to be home, she literally just had a few minutes to make sure David was gone and then leave before Angela got there. If Angela is sticking with, I showed up at two and I got this weird phone call involving a woman and my son right before two. You know, I could go down that rabbit hole of, you know, Mona and David being in cahoots together and he really did pay her to do it. But I just think it's a little, I feel like everything was so poorly done that I feel like the connection between the two of them would have eventually been found out. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's kind of irrelevant. I know that if David was involved, then clearly, you know, we have someone who's guilty you know, out free. But I think that at the end of the day, you know, Mona is in jail. She clearly was the one who actually murdered him. Um, if you want to keep on conspiracy theorizing with the stepfather, go ahead. But I don't really think that he was probably involved. I think that <clears throat> there's just a lot of different routes that you could take with it. But the main one is probably the obvious one. Um, I will read a kind of heavy statement made by a parent of um, a student in the same class as Jonathan. I kind of fixed some of the wording because it was kind of typical internet speak with like abbreviations and bad sentence structure. So <clears throat> the mom says... Um, Quote, my son was Jonathan's fifth grade classmate. Devastated, I remember it being holiday break and a phone announcement was sent asking for help in the search for him. I believe that Mona was upset that Jonathan's mother was living with Mona's ex-girlfriend, platonic or not. I think this enraged Mona so much until she hurt that child out of jealousy and rage. I believe Jonathan was just a means to an end for Mona. That's why she was... That's why she. That's why she so sto is so stone faced and unremorseful. I think that this little boy was just the victim of his mother's circumstance as a whole. While I feel for her as a mother, I feel for young Jonathan more. R.I.P. Gone way too soon. May he rest in peace and his killer be punished by the fullest extent of the law's capabilities. Um, while I. I kind of agree with her statement about the child being a victim of his mother's circumstances as a whole. I'm not so sure that's really anyone's place to say. Nobody knows, you know, their true family life. And just because you have a parent who had some issues with drugs or the law doesn't mean she's the worst parent on the planet and she caused her son's death. So do I think that a certain that certain surroundings and environments are not suitable for young children? Yes. However, Angela, she moved out when the abuse started and she had a job and she was working on Christmas Eve, probably for, you know, overtime pay. And, you know, most importantly, you know, or she was trying to get her shit together, you know what I mean? And, and prove that she was a good mother. And the big thing for me is like, by no means did Angela make Mona do what she did. So you could be... The nicest, you know, in the nicest home and have the nicest parents and, and still get killed. So I don't think it has anything to do with Angela. I know that your environment can up your risk for certain things, absolutely. But to place blame on Angela for Jonathan's murder and that he suffered because of her is, I think, is false. But um, 
I'll go ahead and end with this. Um, I wish that more kind of psychological evidence could have been provided to determine motive because that's really the only thing the prosecution didn't have going for them, kind of like they said they didn't have. Um, You know, even with evidence that can solidify all of those questions of the who, the where, and the how, people still want the why sometimes above all else. Um, But in the end, I think Mona Nelson is right where she should be and motive as much as it is annoying and and you would like to know uh it's it's a terrible thing but at least someone you know is being punished for this um a little bit about jonathan because i think obviously we focused much more on the case and things like that but um jonathan was a typical 12 year old boy he had just celebrated his 12th birthday a month prior Uh, His family put in his obituary that he loves being outdoors, swimming, riding his bike, playing video games, uh, and spending time with his grandparents. He loved animals and being outside so much that he said he wanted to be a marine biologist when he grew up. Um, And I have a bunch of pictures of him with some animals, not necessarily marine animals, but um, animals, and I'll I'll post those because they're very cute. Uh, I read that his funeral was actually at a church that I drive by almost every day, and it made me kind of sad. I feel like I'll kind of look at that church a little differently when I see it. Um, and then I, this was kind of like a sad little quote I found, and I don't know why, but it kind of hit me hard, and it, it, I don't know, makes you remember, I guess, how weird it is to have a young person die. But it says, when Jonathan Paul Foster was buried in South Park Cemetery in Pearland on Tuesday, he will be the first entered in a family plot that will someday hold his grandparents. Um, I actually didn't know what the word interred meant. Um, it means buried or whatever. Um, so it's always kind of strange when you have a parent burying a child and you're surpassing, you know, in death, you know, your grandparents. So um, it's awful. Um, I hope that he's in a better place and I'm glad Mona Nelson is not in a better place. <laughs> um But yeah, that was the case of the sweet little ginger, Jonathan Foster. I'll go ahead and close out this episode. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, We both hope that you enjoyed this episode. So don't uh, forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And be sure to check out our social media for more information on uh, these cases. Um, And also, again, our um, website is alive and well. Links to the sources will be put in the show notes. So if you guys have any questions or want more information, they will be there. And we'll be back next week with more Texas True Crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween.